Hi, this is Alicia Kenworthy, a storyteller and advocate for criminal justice reform in Washington, D.C., and you're listening to Follow Your Dream podcast with your host, Robert Miller. Everyone has a dream. Robert Miller is a musician who had a dream to become a rock star. He followed his dream and he succeeded. If you're ready to pursue and succeed at your dream, then listen up and get inspired and motivated to take action today. Welcome to the Follow Your Dream podcast. Hi, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Follow Your Dream podcast. My name is Robert Miller, and I am your host. I'm pleased to tell you that my Follow Your Dream handbook is now out and available. The handbook is a combination memoir of my musical journey and a step-by-step how-to book. Plus, it's got a whole bunch of very cool photos of my life and my career. I wrote the handbook as an extension of this podcast to help everyone to pursue and succeed at their dream, whatever it may be. The reviews have been just spectacular. It's been called inspiring, extremely helpful, highly readable, the guiding light, and a true literary treasure. So pick up the Follow Your Dream handbook today. It's available on Amazon and wherever books are sold. My guest today is John Malora, who made a fascinating transition in his life from a NASA scientist to a professional photographer. How about that? He's an example of someone who truly followed his dream. And that's what this podcast is all about. John contacted me and told me his story and thought that he would be a perfect guest for the podcast, and I agreed. So that's how we got here. My featured song in this episode, which you're hearing underneath this introduction, and you'll hear at the end again, is a song called Return Voyage, which I wrote back in 1996. You know, I always try to find a song that fits my guest or at least fits the subject in some way. I I haven't written too many NASA songs, but Return Voyage, you know, to me, it's kind of a spacey type of song. I thought it would be perfect for an ex-NASA guy. And if you close your eyes, you can probably imagine yourself being transported across the universe. So, John Malora, welcome to the Follow Your Dream podcast. Hey, man. Thanks for having me, Robert. It's a pleasure. So you must have been one of these guys when you were young that was like a science and math guy. Am I right? I was. I was. Yeah, it always came naturally to me. I mean, you don't get into NASA and that whole kind of career unless you're a very kind of right brain kind of person. I think it's the right brain side that goes for this. Am I right? Well, yes and no. So I kind of fell into this job by accident. You fell into NASA by accident. Okay. This this one we got to hear. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it, if we trace it back, it, it, the, the catalyst for it was my summer job. I was working with a maintenance staff at a camp in New York, outside New York City. And my job being the low man, unskilled guy on the totem pole was to prep the cab or get the cabins ready for the guests to come, which meant pulling dead mice out of toilets. So that was a very unglamorous start. <laughs> and when the opportunity came up, they said, hey, would you like to teach rock climbing? I said, I don't know how to, I don't know how to rock climb, but it's got to be better than pulling dead mice out of toilets, guys. And they said, well, we'll teach you everything. This was through the Boy Scouts at the time, back in the 90s. 
So they sent and trained me up and I became a rock climbing instructor for the summer and carried that with me throughout the rest of my career at Penn State when I was working on my mechanical engineering degree, continued uh, instructing rock climbing for the university outing club. And lo and behold, I put that on my resume that as a director of rock climbing, you know, I managed the staff. I, I didn't kill anybody. And I thought that showed some pretty good <laughs> level. You were a successful director of rock climbing. You didn't kill anybody. Yeah, that's kind of a pass fail. <laughs> you know, check your knots for sure. But the irony is my, my dad had said, you know, don't, don't, don't waste your time being out in the woods all summer. You know, work for Ford or get an internship. And I thought I'm going to be working the rest of my life. So I went and, you know, pulled dead mice out of the toilets and then taught rock climbing. And when it came time to interview for a job, I put my resume in the pile of people of a company that made the spacesuit for NASA. And I, I, I kind of put it in as a joke, all my buddies and I, because I did well in school, but I wasn't a straight A student by any means. So you basically were going to find dead mice inside the spacesuit. Is that well, the idea? Yeah, if, if they needed someone to do that, I was certainly their man. <laughs> um, <laughs> so they called me back for an interview and I was, I was gobsmacked that they called me back for an interview. And this is, you know, it was a phone interview. So this is the 90s. So pre-Zoom, of course. So I was talking to the director of engineering and he said, hey, hang on a second. Someone just by walked by. I want, you to, I want you to talk to. I see you taught rock climbing. And this voice came on the other end of the phone and said, hey, what do you think about rock climbing on Mars? And very flippantly, I said, are you going to pay the airfare? <laughs> and, you know, I got that like that warm prickly sensation in the back of my neck, kind of like when you pass a cop and you might be going a little too fast. And I thought, uh -huh. oh, my God, I just blew this interview. <laughs> and the guy on there on the phone said, get him down here. And that experience teaching rock climbing is actually what, you know, prevented me from going into a career of project management, which I was interviewing for and knew nothing about and would have been horrible at project management. The guy who they brought in was the lead test engineer at the time for all the Mars landing systems that they were building. And he was a ex special forces guy and saw, hey, here's someone who's you know moderately book smart, but has some practical experience that I can send into the field and not get himself injured. So that, that job, um, you know, my discontent with pulling dead mice out of toilets and, and just volunteering to teach rock climbing is actually what set me up for the job testing NASA's stuff. That is crazy. Yeah. So whenever I'd go out and talk to schools or talk to anyone, I would say, you know, don't, don't discredit any kind of experience you have at all in your life. You know, I, I thought, you know, I, I was taking the summer off and rock climbing and playing out in the woods. And that's actually what got me the job, you know, as a globe trotting engineer for NASA and military projects for the next decade and a half. You would think that NASA would have like a whole wealth of geologists and, you know, other rock specialists that they right. call upon. But yeah. they, they got a guy that was a boy scout and was leading rock climbing. I love it. I yeah. love it. Yeah. And the irony was I wasn't even a boy scout. Um, <laughs> I got the job because I thought I was going to be working for Disney's Imagineers over that summer. I applied for an internship there and it fell through and I was sitting in my um, fraternity house and my buddy Bill walked in and said, Hey man, you're, you're looking a little depressed. I said, I just lost the only job I thought I had this summer. And he's the one who said, Hey, you want to work in the woods? You know, you're outdoorsy guy. So uh, yeah, the, the biggest failure I thought I had in my life thus far, not getting that job at Disney was actually, you know, how everything fell into place. You're almost an accidental astronaut. I mean, I, I'm surprised you didn't get into the Mercury or the, one of the programs here. 
<laughs> I've been I've been trying to figure out a way to get myself into a fighter jet. I got close once. I, I photographed the Thunderbirds. That must have been cool. All right, so I got to hear about this. You spent a decade at NASA. You're the rock guy, okay? At NASA. Yeah. Well, one of the rock guys. Yeah, well, I wasn't a geologist. Our team was actually, we, we um, our official title was systems engineers, which sounds super, you know, official. And what our job was, we we're a very specialized crew. We would actually be the ones that would go out into the field and test whatever it was that they built at the company I worked for. So they would send us to, you know, rocket sled test facilities out in the Mojave Desert. And we would test things to go into Mars out in the desert. Um, they sent me to Antarctica. And we, our team were the ones who would actually go and, and put our products on the spacecraft, you know, and like the white suits and, you know, all that stuff. So our team did all the field work for the company. So it was a very hands-on, very team-oriented, high-speed, high-risk job. So what were you testing? What kind of stuff? So the company I worked for, they specialized in fabrics. They were actually created by a bunch of uh, lingerie engineers back in the 1950s. <laughs> I mean, the story just gets weirder and weirder. I feel like Walter Mitty whenever I talk. I really do. All right. So you're the NASA lingerie guy. Yeah, That's well, what you're that, telling those me. were my predecessors. They were the founders of the company. <laughs> they actually worked for Playtex outside of Dover, Delaware. And they got into the space program because at the time in the 50s, Playtex, you know, they were very on the forefront of materials and fabric and rubber development. And when the time came for the Mercury and Apollo spacesuits to be developed, when President Kennedy put down, you know, the gauntlet of, you know, we're making it to the moon, they needed spacesuits. And this crew of former lingerie engineers beat out all the Goliaths of the aerospace industry to design and build the spacesuit because they had such an understanding of patterning and how to design and human movement and kinesiology that they beat out, you know, the, the Boeing's type companies of the world. Wow. So the company I worked for, they, they built the spacesuit. So any suit you've ever seen on the moon or on the space shuttle came from Delaware, which is where I am. And they evolved into various other industries with high-tech fabrics, you know, military surveillance blimps. Um, and then when they started landing robots on Mars in the 1990s with the Pathfinder missions, they had the robots come screaming through the Martian atmosphere and a parachute would deploy out and it was still going too fast for the things, the robots to land safely. So this company developed airbags named after Don Henley, by the okay. way. Um, cool. I like that. <laughs> um, my favorite song is Boys of Summer. But anyway, so we were working on these Mars landing systems where these giant bags would cocoon around the robots and they would bounce across the surface of Mars until they would come to a safe stop. and. I got brought on board in 2000 when they were getting ready to launch more missions. So we tested Mars landing airbags. I tested decelerators that were to inflate up around the spacecraft as it came screaming through the Martian atmosphere. I worked on um, a lot of protection systems for the U.S. military, actually, to protect pilots from uh, chemical warfare agents. You know, they, they don these hoods underneath their helmets. And so I got to see some very, very cool stuff and work with some very incredible people during my tenure there. All right. I'm never going to be able to look at an, at an astronaut suit without thinking of the Playtex living bra. Okay. Hey, that <laughs> from humble beginnings. <laughs> that is so crazy. And they probably spent $14 trillion developing this stuff, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah. So much testing. And especially whenever you get you know, people involved, like with the space, you know, you gotta, you gotta keep the crew members safe. 
you know, if you plow a robot into the ground, that's 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 unfortunate. But uh, it's a whole different ballgame when you start putting human beings and stuff. Oh yeah, oh yeah. Okay, so you're you're this Top Gun at at NASA, or at least working for people that are part of NASA. So at the same time, you had this interest in photography, or did it develop later? No, I actually. For my uh, seventh birthday, my mom got me my first camera. And so this was back in the 80s. So it was, of course, film. It even had like the little expendable flash bulbs that would go off on top. And I've, I've just always enjoyed photography, that visual aspect to it. Because even though, you know, I, I have obviously the math and science part of my brain working, um, a, lo- a lot of people don't give engineers the credit for being creatives, especially in a cutting edge field like aerospace. You know, they're, they, they not only have to understand the physics and science, but they got to create this stuff and out, out of thin air, a lot of times are built on, on this stuff. So photography had been a lifelong hobby of mine since I was about seven. And as this comp, as my company would send me all over the planet, I, I would always, you know, throw my, my trusty Nikon in my bag and away I'd go. And get these photos from all these far-flung places across the planet you know it's uh, it's funny when you said you know of course you had film in the camera you know anybody that's i don't know 30 years of age or younger probably doesn't even know what we're talking about because they've never seen film and i always think about that paul simon song kodachrome okay (laughs) please don't take my kodachrome that's right which means nothing to an entire generation of people but you know at the time of course we all understood what that meant oh yeah and I, look, I do agree. There's a left brain, right brain kind of symmetry. I had the same thing. I was doing uh, the right brain kind of stuff for a long time, but at the same time, I had that creative side on the left brain. So I can understand that you could be doing both at the same time. Yeah, and they, and I, they really benefit each other. You know, to, if you can get them to work in that synchronicity, you know, it, it it can create almost an unfair advantage for you if you if you do are adept at left and right brain activities yeah and if you're not so adept you go to a psychiatrist (laughs) (laughs) that's what happens all right so you're you're being flown all over the world you're in antarctica you're in the mojave desert they're they're putting you in spacesuits you're looking for dead mice or whatever inside (laughs) the spacesuits and at the same time you're taking these photographs huh yeah yep yeah and uh it, it was great. I mean, it, it was such a blessing to be able to, to go to all these places and, um, you know, first of all, have someone else paying for it. You know, that was, uh, that was fantastic. Well, that's what um, you asked in the first interview, right? Are you going right, to pay yeah. for it? Yeah. Yeah. They always paid for the airfare. Not only that, they also <laughs> paid for the airfare to come home. <laughs> Good deal. So you're, you're out there, you're, you're, you're testing products, you're taking pictures at some point, what happened? Did you say, I just don't want to do this anymore? Yeah, so I um, I went through a, a tremendous amount of, of personal growth beginning probably in about 2009. Um, you know, throughout a lot of my life, I, you know, I had all these accolades, you know, engineering degree, all the, you know, commendation letters from Department of Defense, NASA, various other organizations in the world that you would think, you know, oh, wow, you got recognized by them. That, that's going, that, that must mean something. And I had a very severe lack of self-esteem throughout a lot of my life and a very bad case of imposter syndrome. You know, even though I had all these accolades and tangible things I could point to that I have done successfully, I, I 
I thought, man, I'm just one step away from someone finding me out. So the way I, you know, I'm ashamed to say, but, you know, I always tell the story because I think a lot of people can, can relate to this is, you know, I, the way I'd cover up my lack of self-esteem was I had a very, very sharp wit, you know, extreme sarcasm, but to the point where, you know, if I ever felt threatened, which was pretty much all the time, I, I would, you know, just not be a real, real kind person a lot of times. And, you know, that that's not a part of my history that I'm proud of, but that all kind of came to a crescendo in 2009, a few months after the birth of my, my first child. Um, you know, I, I had put this tremendous pressure on me. You know, I didn't want to screw up this being a dad thing. I, you know, I didn't, I, I wanted better for, for my child than some things that had happened to me. And, but it created a tremendous amount of anxiety for me. And then a few months after my daughter was born, um, I got word that my best friend growing up had taken his own life in an intentional overdose. And that, that pretty much sent me to rock bottom. And I, I was pretty worthless, probably at work, you know, couldn't focus for a long time. And, um, just one day I, I, you know, I would say, you know, prayer is the last refuge of a scoundrel. So hadn't been a, a religious person up to that point and said the strength, courage and, and wisdom prayer before I got ready for the day. And felt like this like warmth sensation, like fall all over me. And I thought I'd either just totally cracked up and lost my mind or maybe, you know, God's real and maybe I can move my life in a different direction. And that, that was, that was a moment I can point to, to where I really started to begin healing myself and became a more kinder and compassionate person with other people, with myself, especially. You're still working at yeah. NASA during this yeah. whole oh, yeah. period? Yeah. This is 2009. This is right in the middle of my career. All right. So I want to hear the transition. I mean, you know, you, you were, you weren't feeling great, but you, you had like a, a moment of um, clarity yeah. And uh, at some point you gave up the whole NASA thing. And I want to understand what was your thinking at that time? Yeah. So, so that was in 2009 when I kind of had this change and I, and I, I really just changed my whole way of being and interacting towards people. And right about that time, the company that I had been working for, for almost a decade at that point started really changing their focus. They were, they were bought by venture capitalists that really became a lot more involved it became a very profit-driven organization at that point. And so the things that my team were doing that, you know, we felt were inspiring humankind and, and ex exploration and science and all this stuff really was not the focus of the company anymore. And the whole leadership structure changed and how they treated employees. So I started not like the way I was being treated and my teams to be treated. So I went and talked to the you know, management numerous times. So I was a very high ranking person at the time. And um, it just, it just wasn't satisfying my soul anymore. So I'd been building my photography business up on the side as just like a side hustle, something to do. And in 2016, I decided to leave that company. And I went to another engineering company because, you know, what responsible father of three leaves a you know six-figure job to go be a photographer in southern delaware so i went and worked for another engineering company and made even more money and i was i lasted there about nine months because it just wasn't satisfying my soul anymore my wife said you're miserable like you, your skin has the pallor of like a wet ashtray John. <laughs> and uh because it, it just wasn't satisfying my soul and um she said 
why don't you give the photography thing a try, like full time? And if it doesn't work out, get another workaday job. And, you know, at least you're, you're never going to be uh, sitting on the rocking chair when you're in your 70s and 80s saying, you know what, I think that could have been me if I'd just given it a shot. She said, don't, don't do that. Go for it. So that was about four and a half years ago. Well, you, you know, your wife is very prescient because the whole subject of my transition and of this podcast is to make sure that in your life, everybody's got a dream, in my opinion. Okay, mm -hmm. We all start out life with dreams and aspirations, and most of us never get there because, let's face it, life gets in the way, just like it did with you. You were into a job and a career, and you had obligations, you had a family, you had kids, you had probably debts as well. And not too many people can just drop all of that. But like you just said, you never want to get to that point in your life or any point in your life where you look back and you say, gee, I wish I had taken my shot. Yeah. I wish I had tried. Because all that leads to, if you don't do it, is regret. And who wants to have regret in, for the rest of your life? So bravo to you. That, and it was your wife that pushed you, which is so interesting because yeah. You know, a lot of times when you talk about transitions like this, it's it's the individual that's pushing themselves and it's the family that maybe has some reticence because, you know, they're afraid of losing their lifestyle or something like that. But you had just the opposite. So good for your wife and good for you. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm very, very thankful that um, they, they're, they've been such willing participants along for the ride. And she hasn't left you since then, right? No, no, no. Stronger <laughs> than ever. All right. That's um, good. Yeah, we, we've been married for, um, I think, 18 years now at this point. So, um, yeah, it, it, you know, there, there were, of course, a lot of sacrifices. Um, you know, we were watching our friends going on these vacations uh, to places. And, you know, at the beginning, we, we just couldn't afford to go to them. And then, you know, they'd still go away on these vacations and you know my wife and I are only able to fly in for like two or three days instead of like the full week but you know we we made it work and and realized that there are some sacrifices but there's also a lot of rewards that go along with it the inner happiness the inner warmth that you get from ultimately doing what you wanted to do and to follow your dream you can't describe that to people unless they've done it themselves. But, you know, so many people are kind of in a dead end existence and you got yourself out of it. So that, that's what this is all about, this podcast. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm, I'm, I'm so thankful to have the opportunity to tell my story, not not for me, but for those people that are out there that are, you know, I'm sure someone listening to this is, is really going to be identifying it. Well, you know, at, at this point in the podcast, I, I like to ask my guests and particularly someone like you that has made this transition. There's so many people out there that haven't followed their dream, or if they have, they haven't succeeded yet, or it hasn't gone anywhere yet. And I like to ask people like you, what would be your advice to those people out there, those dreamers out there? Yeah, the, uh, the first piece of advice would be don't, don't create paralysis by analysis. Like don't plan it to death, you know, kind of at some point you just gotta, you gotta take a leap and figure it out. And it doesn't necessarily have to be, you know, leaving your job. You know, I, I did photography on the side for years. Um, while I, while I had my, my work a day job, I had a business on the side. So don't think it's, it's kind of an all or, or nothing. 
thing. And then another good piece of advice for people is to get surround yourself with people with like a coaching or a mastermind group that you can really bounce things off of because I was involved in those for the you know last few years I was in the corporate world you know knowing I might want to eventually make this jump and it was really good to have a sounding board of people to give you honest feedback absolutely we have been speaking here to John Malore, who has had an, a fascinating transition from work. I call it as a NASA scientist. Now he's a professional photographer. He has finally found a way to follow his dream. And uh, again, I take my hat off to you that you were able to do that. Here are my key takeaways from my interview with John Malora. You don't have to give up everything to go pursue your dream. He kept his photography as a side hustle for years before he went into it full time. And secondly, think about joining a mastermind or coaching group in order to keep going into your area of expertise and where your dream lies. It helped him. It can help you too. At this point, we're going to play again the song that I started out playing uh, underneath the introduction. It's my song called Return Voyage that I wrote back in the 1990s for an album that is probably out of existence at this point. But I re-released it in uh, 2014 in an album called 20, which was my 20-year retrospective. So I want to thank you, John, for being on the podcast. And uh, we'll see you in the next episode. Thanks for listening to the Follow Your Dream podcast. Make sure to subscribe, rate, and review the podcast so you don't miss another inspiring episode. You can connect with Robert at robert at followyourdreampodcast.com. And you can hear more from his band at projectgrandslam.com and at thepgsstore.com.
Thank you.